Hello and welcome to KPMG's Advice Worth Keeping podcast series, where we hear from firm professionals, third-party thought leaders, and other luminaries on important trends, topics, and leading practices. I'm Steve Stein, the co-lead of KPMG's Information Governance and Privacy Practice in the U.S., and joining me today are Nick Schmidt and Keaton Ford from our U.S. practice. Nick, welcome back. Thanks. Great to be back. And Keaton, happy Friday. Happy Friday. Thanks for having me, Steve. Good to have you here in our Chicago Innovation Lab and in our studio on the 68th floor. So, gentlemen, thanks for joining me today. We're going to discuss data subject access requests as required under the California Consumer Privacy Act, also known as CCPA, that goes into effect in January. And while many of our listeners know that their company has to provide for an intake of such data subject requests, I think there's very little information out in the marketplace on how to think about DSR in the most strategic way and to think about a fulfillment strategy as well. And also very little literature in terms of how to configure tools for the best success. We're joining today Nick, who works with a lot of companies on the strategic impact and strategic considerations for implementing DSR, along with Keaton Ford, who is one of our technology leads on the configuration end, to sort of chat through what they're seeing in the market and what are some of the leading practices. When I think about DSR, I'm always thinking about like the big four steps. And the big four steps to me relate to one, consumer request intake. So how do you figure out from a consumer what they want under the law? Number two relates to identity proofing. So how does a company validate that the consumer making the request is who they purport to be? Three, assuming that you're comfortable with the level of identification and assuming that there's no reason not to fulfill the request, how does a company kick off the internal process to go search and select and collect the data. And fourth is a packaging and production question. How do you package and produce it to the consumer? Let's go through each of the big four. Nick, as it relates to intake, what are you thinking about? What's most important to you and your clients? There's two things that are really important when you're looking at how to intake DSRs. The first of which is the method, is that you provide an appropriate method that's required by the law. The California law, for instance, requires that all companies provide a toll-free phone number and an online web form to fulfill DSRs. In addition, some California regulations that recently came out require that a business that primarily interacts with customers through brick-and-mortar locations, so for instance, the big box retailers that we all know and love, those retailers also have to provide consumers with the ability to file a form in those brick-and-mortar locations that will activate the DSR form. form, a written form that will activate the DSR process. And additionally, according to the recent Assembly Bill 1564 in California, certain businesses that operate exclusively online and have a direct consumer relationship can get away with just an email address. Additionally, you also want to respond to that DSR request very quickly. You don't have to provide your final response, the access to deletion quickly, but you do have to acknowledge it, according to the Attorney General of California, within about 10 days. But it's always pays just within a couple hours, even an automated form. You never want to make any promises or representations such as we will fulfill your request shortly. You just want to say, hey, we've got your request. We're working on it. We'll get back to you soon. Oh, so easy, Keaton. Couldn't be easier. All you got to do is have an intake. There must be forms for that, right? 
Right. Well, so while it seems easy on the surface, I think that there's actually, with each of the four steps you outlined, Steve, they could in theory be their own operating model of people, process, and technology. So with the intake itself, one main thing to consider as we're configuring these tools or solutions is how can we get all of these requests into a single repository? As Nick mentioned, there's things like the toll-free number. A lot of our clients have the web forms or some sort of customer service online portal as well. But really making sure that we're taking all avenues of intake and putting them into a single repository so that we or our client can get a view of everything that's coming in is one of the main considerations to think about the process behind the intake itself for all of these requests. A couple other questions on the actual form itself. What about the sequencing of questions or what about trying to figure out what information you're trying to get from the consumer on the front end? I think that the strategy behind the questions or the information we're trying to get from these requests is really what will lead us to that next step of the identity verification, right? We want to make sure that we're getting enough information in the intake and that we're configuring the correct elements so that ultimately we're able to accurately triage the request and the consumer to the right area of our client's business. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. So step two is proofing. What are we seeing? It seems like a pretty stressful topic in the industry. This is certainly the question that keeps most of our clients up at night. And the big problem here is I'm required to provide you with your data. But if Keaton, for instance, were to file a DSR as you and I reveal it to him, that's a data breach. So it keeps a lot of our clients up at night, especially those of our clients who have transitioned to a privacy role from cybersecurity. This is definitely their primary concern. Really, we've seen a lot of approaches toward that authentication. And the one principle that you want to follow is the amount of authentication required needs to match the kind of data that you'll get. The more harmful the data that an identity thief potentially get their hands on should require higher authentication. For instance, if I want your banking records, I should probably show some pretty good proof that I'm myself. Some of our clients have looked at a number of different mechanisms. There's one that we don't really recommend, but some people have flirted with, and that's requiring everyone to file a notarized affidavit of identity. And it's a great example of instances of authentication where you have to think about violating the law by implication. Notarized affidavit may impose a secret cost on people because you have to pay that notary to notarize your affidavit. And DSRs under the California law are supposed to be free. If you're thinking about that as a business, well, that's a very, very ironclad way to do authentication. You should really talk to your legal counsel before you take that risk. And again, you could get the advice as it relates to proofing, but how do you operationalize or configure a tool in order to match that? What are you seeing, Keaton? I think that there's many different avenues for the verification process, as Nick just outlined. I think one thing to consider, though, is the different types or different documents that we may ask consumers or data subjects to submit carry different risks. I think that within the workflow and configuring workflows or any sort of tool out there, the main consideration is to identify these risks and then identify people within the team at the client that will actually be handling the verification process. Say, for instance, we're asking consumers to submit a driver's license. Well, who from our end is going to validate that that's an up-to-date or a valid driver's license? Are we going to bring in a third party to handle that verification? Within the workflow, where is this information going to be stored? And I think that the biggest thing, too, that telling our clients as we're configuring our tools is to make sure that if we are collecting any additional information, 
outside of the data elements from the intake form is to make sure that we're assigning and enforcing a retention policy so that any information that we are collecting, we're securing, we're making sure that once it's used and once they are validated, that we're properly removing it to avoid any additional risks related to personal information. Great advice. So the third issue on data discovery probably could take an entire podcast. And in a lot of ways, it's the majority of the time of the 45 days plus the chance to get another 45 days to fulfill is probably all tied up in the data discovery piece. In a short couple high-level recommendations on discovery, Nick, what are you thinking? What are you seeing? There's really two broad approaches to discovery. The first of which is a manual approach where a member of the team receives the DSR, and they send out a large email to business owners across the company saying, hey, Mike Jones has filed the DSR. Everybody send in what you got on Mike Jones. That approach is very low cost, but it does require a much bigger headcount. It requires more cooperation across the business, and it's generally longer to fulfill, slower, and maybe not as accurate. The other approach is to use an automatic scanning tool, something like Big ID or Data Guys, which has slowly been making its way into the market. These tend to be more thorough scans. They tend to be better searches with a much lower headcount. The person managing the DSR fulfillment process can do it from their desk. But these tools are quite expensive. And so how are companies deciding? How do you decide if you're going to be a day one manual or you're going to be a day one automatic? How are companies figuring that out? Cost and time frame is often the first considerations. A lot of these scanning tools also take a couple months to stand up reliably. But in addition to that, companies will look at how integrated they are. So if I only have one or two systems that hold personal information, I'm probably not going to invest in a scanner because I know that I only have to run two searches. Where a company where personal information might be scattered across 30, 40, 50 systems, that's definitely a strong return on investment. Maybe Keaton, on the configuration front, any quick thoughts as it relates to, and I'm thinking more of sort of like the day one situation, maybe it's more the manual situation. And we've certainly worked with several different tools on configuring that workflow around discovery. What do you recommend to our listeners? As Nick mentioned, there's a lot of of tools in the market today that are very good at at scanning. But I think one thing that often gets overlooked is having an up-to-date and accurate inventory of the data. It really will make the scanning more efficient when we know what we're looking for or who to reach out. So being able to understand all the systems that may be in play that involve personal information, as well as the reason or the business activity behind it, so that we can really get the full life cycle of where personal information may be in a client's environment. I think that really having that information beforehand, before implementing scanning tool, will really help the configuration and the workflow work that much better. Great. So now let's maybe talk about number four, which has a fair bit of conversation on like the package, the production. What does that look like, Nick? Well, for a deletion request, you just need to acknowledge that the data is deleted. But for an access request, that's the question. And CCPA and GDPR and many other data privacy regulations that specify that you have to give this access request say that when you provide the data, it must be in a portable format that can be taken to a competitor. What this means depends upon how specialized your business is. A number of our more specialized manufacturing clients, our insurance companies that we work with, they tend to just produce PDFs because their business is very specialized. So here's a PDF of your claim file. Here's a PDF of your warranty records, so on and so forth. 
some of our more commoditized industry clients. So CPG manufacturers, grocers, companies where there's a lot of interchangeability between product. They'll often look at providing, say, for instance, a common delimited file using the uniform product number for various goods. And that allows very quickly changing, for instance, from one grocer's loyalty program to another, or one CPG's program to another CPG's program through comparison of products. Lastly, social media and technology clients usually look at using an XML or other comment or other delimited text format that can very, very easily and quickly collapse the object structure in the code into a exportable file that can then be read and parsed by another entity. And what about on the configuration end, Keaton, the packaging? I know that we've looked through several different, whether there's security controls or other format requirements. What do you see? Yeah, so I think Nick brought up some good points on the actual format of the output for, say, an access request. But I think another thing to consider would be the actual secure message channel when we're sending that back, as well as what's our response strategy, making sure that the proper teams are sending back the proper information, making sure that we have all of our verbiage correct for how we're handling these responses. You know, I think that that goes into the whole people process technology operating model for the fulfillment of understanding who's responsible for this final piece, as well as the process to mark something as complete within the repository of all of these requests that are coming in. Very good. So I guess two last things that I want to address in the last part of this. I'd love to talk about exceptions. You know, Nick, do you think a lot of companies are just going to say no? No, I can't fulfill the request that you're making and have some valid business or legal reason to do so? There are certainly instances where you want to make exceptions to your ability to provide access to deletion requests. One of the biggest ones that every single company is going to share is litigation and circumstances that are under a cloud of litigation. So you get, for instance, a DSR request from a former employee, and you're wondering if they're trying to check out a potential lawsuit against your company. Or someone's already in a lawsuit with you, and they're trying to get around the court-mandated and court-managed discovery request. Those types of DSR requests, either deletion or access, should be given to the attorney that will be in charge of that case, and they should be allowed to handle it. They should have the ability, for instance, to remove things that are legally privileged. You should never provide an access request for something that is legal privilege. Another one, especially for our insurance clients and other clients that deal with credit cards, is an anti-fraud department. You don't want to give somebody their anti-fraud file. Right. And Keaton, what about using templates? If you're getting hundreds or thousands of these requests and we're going to have exceptions, how do we best set up our templated responses in a way that allows a small number of people to acknowledge the exception and indicate the exception to the consumer? I think it's an interesting point with the exceptions for tooling configuration because it's hard to identify every exception that's going to come into play before they happen. So I think one of the main things to consider is having a good process in place so that once we identify these new exceptions, we're able to build that into our workflow and build that into perhaps the response that we provide back to a consumer. Being able to identify those individuals and come up with a strategy of how we can now bake that into our new workflow is definitely something that would need to be considered for any sort of tooling solution. And maybe the last subject that I'd love to catch your guys' ear and get your opinion on is volume. All of our clients are asking us, well, how many of these are we going to get? How many are we going to have to field starting on January 1st? I know in some previous discussions with both of you and with clients, 
we game planned for as high as 1% of California customers of the given organization to as low as 0.5%. Now, if you've got 5 million customers in California, I mean, you're talking 5,000 to 50,000 requests in that first year, which could be a devastating amount. Any thoughts, Nick, on the issue of volume? Yeah, generally speaking, as we look at California as a state, it's one of the most litigious jurisdictions and one of the most litigious countries in the world. So you definitely plan for the worst. You're probably going to see a spike on January 1st as people get these rights and they're thinking, I'm going to take advantage of this. I want to pull myself off of a lot of different areas. One of the open questions now is whether organizations such as the AARP and the EFF, if they're allowed to submit wholesale lists of thousands of individuals, you'll probably be dealing with a much larger volume than otherwise. Any thoughts, Keaton, on I mean, what companies are doing if the volumes are this large? Yeah, so I think that that's the whole reasoning behind these, these tooling and solutions that we're seeing in the market. In theory, everything we've talked about could be done manually. Each step can be done from a manual perspective. But the whole purpose behind these solutions and what we're configuring is to help with volume and to make the process more efficient. So I think that that is why we're seeing a lot of our clients start to purchase and bring us in to help with the configuration, just to help with the chance that there is a extremely high volume come January 1. I think what we've spoken to several about is sort of a co-sourcing model where you could use an outside consultancy potentially to be your expanded staff if the amount of requests is more than the staff within the organization can field and respond to within the 45 plus 45 days. Any final thoughts before we close? This DSR process seems very difficult, and it's probably something that a lot of companies are looking at and saying, oh my gosh, it's going to be so much work forever. But like every new procedure, as you get used to it and as your team gets more experienced, it will become less and less stressful, and it will eventually, we expect, hit a point where you'll be able to automate a lot of this and it'll just occur. And just to sum up, I think I mentioned it a few times, but just people process technology, right? That's something that we preach within our privacy line here. And I think it couldn't be more true for DSAR. The technology in place, if you don't have the people or the processes well-defined and well-ready, there's really no difference between having a solution or doing it manually. The goal behind it is to bring in a tool or some sort of solution to make this easier for you. So by having everything in place and a correct, well-defined strategy, that will really make these fulfillments, the data discovery, the intake, verification, make everything simpler for our clients. Yeah, Keaton, I can't emphasize that more. I think DSR is actually a wonderful opportunity for a lot of our clients that have been fairly disintegrated in their data strategies to look and maybe start integrating that and saying, I want to reduce my DSR expenses in the future. Let's start moving my data into one house. Let's start putting things into a smaller amount of databases. And I think that that'll be a really long-term, possibly a good cost saver incentive for a lot of our clients. Well, with that, I thank you both for joining me today. To our listeners, our future podcasts will continue to address a range of privacy topics. Our next one is on cookie management and the impact of CCPA on cookies. Finally, I'd like to thank you for listening to our Advice Worth Keeping podcast series. Should you wish to discuss this topic further or connect with me on other privacy topics, please feel free to contact me at sssteen at kpmg.com. 
Again, that's sstein at kpmg.com. To find this podcast online, please go to kpmg.com forward slash US forward slash podcasts. Thank you for your time today. And we look forward to bringing you more podcasts on data privacy.